Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this podcast series, we're putting on our metaphorical rugby boots and binding onto the rolling mall that is UK trade policy. It's a subject that takes many forms, and there are aspects of trade policy that frankly leave the average citizen a bit bewildered, not to say disengaged, but today's topic is not one of them. Here in the UK, everyone cares about the National Health Service. Nearly everyone pays for it, nearly everyone uses it. And nearly everyone has a view on how it should be run, and in particular what role there should be for private sector businesses, whether British or foreign, in running and operating the system. That means that when people see headlines about whether or not the NHS is for sale in forthcoming trade negotiations, they sit up and take notice. But what does that even mean? The NHS offers a massive range of services, from brain surgery to cleaning the hospital windows. So if any of these services are subcontracted, who's allowed to bid for them? To what extent do healthcare services form part of the discussions in international trade negotiations like the one the UK has just commenced with the United States? And are there international rules about what can or should or may not be on the table? Our aim today is to go beyond those tabloid headlines and get a trade expert's perspective on some of these very important questions. I'm joined here in Brighton by Dr Ingo Borschert, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sussex and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And joining us on the line is Laura Bannister, Senior Advisor at the Trade Justice Movement, a coalition of UK civil society organisations. Welcome to both of you and, and thanks for joining us today. So, Ingo, how are healthcare services normally covered in free trade agreements? What's included, what isn't? Yeah, Chris, the treatment of healthcare services tends to follow the GATS. It is a general agreement on trade and services, a multilateral framework for exchanging concessions in services sectors. And the way it works is that countries choose from a list of sectors and for healthcare That would include uh, medical, dental and midwife services as part of professional services, so the natural persons discharging these services, as well as hospital services and other human health services. Those would be ambulance services, nurseries or care homes. And then countries would make specific commitments if they so chose for how these services are going to be exchanged across borders. That could be if the patient crosses a border, goes abroad, consumes a service that might be a British resident having their dental implants done abroad, or that could be a foreign healthcare provider establishing commercial presence here in the UK and thereby discharging medical services. Okay, so these are the famous modes of supply, modes one, two, three, and four, which are... Two of them, yes. Two of them, yes. We'll come back to those uh, yes. as, the, as the podcast goes on. Laura Bannister, what are the rules about healthcare provision in the EU? Now, obviously, Britain been, has been part of a fairly, very deeply integrated free trade agreement for a long time. Is the EU a genuine single market in healthcare, or are there carve-outs? And if so, where do they lie? 
Yeah, there's a huge carve out for healthcare within the EU. So the, the main piece of legislation within the EU that opens up health services to foreign providers, well, opens up services in general, sorry, for foreign providers is the services directive. And at the time that that was negotiated, trade unions and other groups pushed very hard and succeeded in getting a big carve out for healthcare. So healthcare is not covered by that agreement. And I think what's interesting about that is that, of course, health services are still traded between EU countries. You don't need a trade agreement to trade in services. You don't need a trade agreement to trade in anything. Trade happens anyway. What trade agreements do is they force certain terms and conditions on that trade. And so that's why I think there are such concerns about the idea of health services being covered by a trade agreement. It's not that we don't want providers from other countries to be able to operate in our country necessarily, but we want to be able to set the rules for that and trade agreements limit how we can do it. Just to add to this, is of course exactly right that the services directive, the so-called Bolkestein directive, exempts healthcare services from its purview. But I would just add that there is a range of other aspects of the EU single market that have a indirect bearing on the provision of healthcare services. Mm -hmm. For instance, government procurement and competition policy. And to the extent that NHS trusts are uh, fall within government procurement, there are certain laws, you know, that facilitate the trans-European trade in healthcare services if NHS trusts were to contract out certain services. So to what extent can we truly talk about a market for healthcare services? I mean, nearly all healthcare systems have some element of government funding. So can we talk about truly a market or is that probably not the right word to use in this context? I think from a citizen perspective, we don't think of it as a market and we shouldn't think of it as a market. But companies that are engaging in healthcare business, as they see it, are perfectly happy to take money from governments as well as or instead of from customers. So from their perspective, you know, Virgin Healthcare and all the other big healthcare companies that take part in providing healthcare services, to them it is a market. They just have their customer as the government rather than the, the healthcare user. I would say, you know, it is certainly a market on a positive note. You know, a market for me is a way of organizing things. And, you know, the provision, the production and the consumption of healthcare services is a transaction that will have a price to it. And of course, it's exactly right that this is a especially sensitive market because we're talking about people's health and in extreme cases, even about people's lives. But the way how we efficiently organize these markets and what price to be paid and aspects such as if we wanted to subject these kind of transactions, for instance, to competition law, these are genuine uh, approaches how we to markets. And so I think this is a, a useful way of thinking about it. Okay. Now, Ingo, you mentioned earlier about the UK's GATS schedule. That's nothing to do with Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. It's the <laughs> general agreement on trade and services. What sort of benchmark does that set? The UK has set the, or is in the process of setting this out at the World Trade Organization level. So what are we committing to in GATS when it comes to services in this area? Yes, in a nutshell, not very much. As Laura was already saying, a large part of the NHS is publicly funded and there is a large carve-out under the GATS for what in their terminology they would call public utilities. And so these might be subject to statutory monopolies or exclusive rights. And so any of these kind of things would be fully covered by the GATS. 
the UK has made a certain commitment under what we would call Mode 3, which is the establishment of foreign firms here in the UK for the purposes of providing healthcare services, for instance, hospitals. In that specific aspect, the UK has made a full commitment, astonishingly, but all of that is subject to this general carve-out of public utilities. I don't actually think it has very much bite. Yeah, I think it does make it interesting when the government says that the NHS is not on the table in trade deals, because, of course, the GATS is the biggest trade deal there has ever been and ever will be. It covers all members of the World Trade Organization. And health services, as you say, are still quite substantially put on the table in that case. We could have opted to completely exclude health services when we adopted our own GATS schedules in the last couple of years. And we didn't do that. We didn't take that opportunity to take the NHS off the table. So I think that's, although the commitments in the GATS are relatively limited, they set a precedent and a worrying precedent for how health services are going to be treated in, in other trade agreements. So when we talk about services in the NHS, of course, there, as, as I mentioned earlier, there are lots of different types of services. There's hospital cleaning, there's catering, there's social care, there's contracts to mow the lawns around your hospitals. Who can tender for these services? What are the rules about applying for contracts in these in these areas? Well, the UK is actually very much an open market. We've, you know, we've seen a lot of NHS privatisation, especially of the ancillary services that, you know, aren't the medical elements of healthcare, but are very key to how healthcare is provided. So I think hospital cleaning is a key example. So in England, that's been very substantially opened up to private providers, much less so in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. And, you know, as a result of that, we've seen big changes in how hospital cleaning takes place. And we've seen a lot of problems come up with that. So the incidence of MRSA is 50% higher in hospitals that have outsourced cleaning, for instance. Now, the way that's treated in a trade agreement, trade agreements don't force you to outsource your services. But once you've done so, they often make it very difficult to go back on that. So, you know, we could say that the UK has had an experiment in outsourcing hospital cleaning and that it's been a failed experiment. We found that that causes problems. It's not worth cost cutting in that area, especially with, you know, new global viruses. We've got coronavirus that we're dealing with at the moment. We need to make sure that this is something that's a priority, that we're maintaining hygiene standards. And yet trade agreements can lock in place these commitments and these, you know, this outsourcing progress that we've made, as some people would see it, and make it impossible for us to go back on it without facing huge claims for compensation. So I think definitely the way that the services that surround medical services are treated in trade agreements is hugely worrying and something that I think when the government says the NHS is off the table, I don't think they mean hospital cleaning is off the table, but that's something they definitely should be thinking hard about. I would just make a slight distinction between outsourcing and offshoring. So outsourcing could be purely domestic. And exactly as you said, Laura, um, you could have a private provider, you know, mown the lawn or, you know, clean the floors. I don't think that's to be discussed in the same context as free trade agreements. But the cross-border trade of these kind of services, which basically is the ability of foreign natural persons to come to the UK and render certain services, this is also severely restricted under the GATT. So for the most part, the UK remains unbound, which is not making any commitments in its GATT schedule in what we would call mode four. Now, I think Chris has alluded to the fact that 
there's a huge variety of ability and skill intensity in these kind of services, you know, all the way from low-skilled services such as cleaners, perhaps, or premises managers, all the way up to consultants and doctors. And the current points-based immigration system that's currently being discussed in the UK government will have a huge implication for what kind of people under what conditions can come generically, but of course it will have a massive impact on the healthcare sector as well. Okay, so the UK has just started negotiations on two fronts with the European Union and also with the United States. So what do we know so far about what the two sides have asked for and what they are prepared to give in this area of either the UK-EU or the UK-US discussions? Healthcare is, is a big worry, especially in the UK-US discussion. The US are pushing hard on pharmaceuticals. Um, they have a big pharmaceutical industry producing medicines and medical devices. The UK currently doesn't buy much of its medicine from the US. And there's a number of reasons for that. And the US is very keen to knock those reasons down. The problem is that the ways in which the UK buys medicine are deliberately designed to keep those medicine prices low. And that's vital for us as citizens. And it's vital to keep the NHS functioning and keep it affordable and viable. So the US has a huge interest in pushing those protections away and we have a huge interest in keeping them. So that's going to be the big issue in the, the US trade deal. Okay, so playing devil's advocate just for a moment, if you are talking about this question of drugs pricing... Laura, you mentioned that the NHS drugs buying system is specifically designed to keep prices for us, the consumer, the patient, as low as possible. If you are Mr. U.S. healthcare executive, you're going to see that as a trade distorting measure. Is there any sympathy for that point of view? I mean, why should there not be something close to an open market or a free market or a free euro market for goods which are bought and sold in this way? Because having medicines affordable is much more important than worrying about trade priorities or whether trade is truly free. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely a trade barrier. And so it should be. Medicines are vital for people's well-being. They're vital for people's survival. And keeping them affordable is the whole basis on which we're able to access them at all. So, yes, it is a trade barrier. There's nothing wrong with trade barriers in certain circumstances. There's nothing inherently good about free trade. It's something that can be useful, but where it isn't useful, we shouldn't seek to get it. I'm afraid that the profits of Mr. Private Health Executive or Mr. Private Pharmaceutical Executive in the US are just not my top concern compared with the health of people in the UK or indeed in any other country around the world. Well, I think I would certainly agree with the statement that trade can be useful. I think it can be massively useful in certain instances. Now, coming back to these negotiating mandates, I think we should treat them with a grain of salt. The EU is peculiar in the sense that the Commission will be very will be much more tightly bound by that mandate. And as a result, if you look at it, it is much more detailed and much more granular. Looking at the USTRs, the US Trade Representatives negotiating mandate for the future UK-US deal, there is clearly you know, a marker in there that they seek full market access and standards on procedural fairness, that prices are being, prices for, for these drugs, for medicines are being non-discriminatory and Specifically, I think this is 
potentially the biggest cause for concern, that this agreement provide full market access for U.S. products. At the same time, you have in the context of government procurement, this ask that there is full access to these government tendered contracts, but at the same time retained by American provisions and all the rest of it. So, you know, it's a lot of asks and at the same time carving out a lot for the Americans. So I would take this with a grain of, with a grain of salt, really. There's another feature of trade agreements that we need to look out for when it comes to health and healthcare, and that's to do with regulation. So trade agreements often have statements in them about how regulation should be kept efficient, science-based, kept to a minimum. Um, so this crops up in chapters about, for instance, food and farming. So we have a problem in the NHS, as do many countries, with antibiotic resistance. So we have bugs like MRSA, which are resistant to being treated by antibiotics, and more and more illnesses are getting more difficult to treat with antibiotics. That's predominantly because they're being used too much. They're being used too much in human medicine, but they're also being used far too much in veterinary practice on farms. So some food production systems give animals antibiotics on a, on a daily or a regular basis because they don't have very good hygiene practices and it helps to keep the animals well. But what that means is a huge amount of antibiotics is being pumped into the system. Now, in the UK, we have regulations about this. And in the US, there are regulations, but they're much tighter in the UK. And that affects what products we allow in via trade. Trade agreements often seek to erode those, what they see as trade barriers, those regulations that say you can't bring in products that have been produced in this way using, you know, this very heavy use of antibiotics. So, and then that makes it difficult for UK farmers to compete unless we also lower our standards. You've helpfully emphasised the link there between health policy and, and even something like agriculture. What about data, data flows, data privacy? It's an increasingly important part of trade agreements these days. How can patient privacy be guaranteed or safeguarded in the context of the kind of agreements that we're, we're getting in these areas? This is a really new part of trade agreements that we've never had before. It's evolved in the last few years, since 2016. There's starting to be trade rules that not only allow data to be moved across borders, but insist that data has to be allowed to move across borders and that that, that flow can't be regulated or controlled in various ways. And in parallel, that you can't insist that certain types of data get stored or processed within your territory. You know, it always has to be allowed to flow out. The problem with that when it comes to the NHS is twofold. So first of all, as you mentioned, Chris, there's the privacy issue. You know, it might be that companies in the US that are, you know, receiving our data and storing it and processing it, it might be that they're doing so in a very safe and secure way. It might be that the data is well anonymized and that it's used for good purposes, or it might not. And the difficulty is once that data has left UK borders, we haven't really got any jurisdiction over it. We can't control it. We can't supervise those companies that are using it. So ultimately, we can't really guarantee that patient data is being used for good purposes, that it's not being abused and used to charge people more for insurance, for instance, or, you know, for more for pensions, or, you know, there's, there's lots of ways in which this data could be abused and even de-anonymized via certain strategies and traced back to individuals. I think it is certainly true that concerns about data privacy and the protection of personal data has been come much more to the fore in recent years. It is one of these areas alongside intellectual property protection and competition policy that is not a genuine trade area but indirectly has a huge impact on trade in services. 
it will typically be dealt with in separate chapters in modern free trade agreements. And I don't quite think that there's a precedent for a requirement, really, that data flow across borders. I think the farthest reaching example that I am aware of is the Comprehensive and Progressive Trade um, TPP. TPP. In uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that's it. Uh, Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a 12 Pacific Rim region, except the US or the Trump administration pulled it out. There, there is a limited requirement for the free flow of data, but that's only predicated on consumers as a user of e-commerce. And that's about it. It is a pretty limited realm. It does not cover financial services, does not cover health services. And clearly there are diverging views, certainly between the UK and the US, about many of these issues. And the concern is, one of the concerns is that they will ultimately end up in a dispute. And so the dispute settlement provisions in any given trade agreement are, of course, of vital interest. Would health care be included in any kind of dispute settlement deal done between the UK and the US? Is there the risk of the NHS essentially being taken to court by a particular party for not upholding the rights which that party thought it had it was enjoying? I think there are certainly legitimate concerns around that. The kind of dispute settlement can be chapter-specific in these FTAs. The EU clearly has moved away from so-called investor state dispute settlement, ISDS, provisions. But what I hear recently, even the US is not as enthusiastic as it was about ISDS. I think I would agree that there are issues about the transparency and the accountability of that kind of process, because if a dispute were to arise, it would go to some sort of panel, um, the composition of which, you know, can raise both the composition of the panel and the procedural transparency would raise issues. There is nothing at the moment that would be an indication that there is ISDS in any future US-UK deal. I don't think we can be completely reassured that investor state dispute settlement or ISDS is not going to crop up in these trade agreements. I think that the parties involved have very sensibly avoided mentioning it, especially in those words in any of their negotiating mandates, because it's hugely unpopular. It's something that has sunk several major previous trade deals, including the TTIP deal a few years ago. But there also there's lots of language that says things like we want to build on, you know, the precedents of the most far-reaching trade deals so recently negotiated, and that would be things like the CETA deal with, between the EU and Canada, and that contains ISDS. Also, I don't think that the EU has moved away from ISDS. They've simply reinvented it in a new form. So they've invented something called the investment court system, which is still a mechanism that allows investors to sue governments directly. So it's very much still a mechanism that if it was put in place between the EU and the UK, it's a mechanism by which you know private health companies that don't get what they want from their activities in the UK could absolutely sue the UK government or, you know, any other kind of company could sue the UK government for something, for a policy that the UK government have put in place in order to improve the nation's health. 
Okay, now we've been focusing almost exclusively on trade in healthcare as being a defensive concern for us here in Britain. But does the UK also have any kind of offensive interest in healthcare service provision in other countries, which a trade deal might open up for healthcare service providers in the UK to expand the areas where they could operate? Yes, Chris, I think you're alluding to that particular kind of trading services where the consumer actually moves abroad and where it might be more cost effective to have certain kinds of procedures done. And this is a huge phenomenon. A lot of dental implants are done in Eastern European countries. And the same kind of, you you might call it health tourism without any negative connotation at all. It is just the fact that people now go abroad and may be able in certain circumstances to receive medical treatment or dental treatment at a fraction of the cost for comparable quality. So it is not an offensive interest uh, towards the EU or to the US, which we have been talking about so far, but to other countries where a couple of countries, Mauritius, India, have majorly developed this kind of business sector, where I think the UK would be looking towards one option of tackling amongst the portfolio of options of tackling the exploding costs in healthcare. I mean, I think the UK does see healthcare as an offensive interest, as in something that it hopes to gain access to go and for UK companies to go and provide healthcare elsewhere. My understanding is that the NHS, in fact, has done some work in providing hospital services, for instance, in other countries, and that the NHS brand is now seen overseas. My feeling in terms of trade agreements on this is it's absolutely fine for other countries to invite UK health companies or the NHS to come and operate in their territory if they feel that that's to the benefit of their citizens. That's fine, but you don't need a trade agreement for that to happen. What we want is if where that happens, for that to be done according to the terms that the receiving country is happy with. We don't want to try and tie them into any terms they're not happy with. We don't want to try and force them to keep UK health providers in their country if they decide on a different policy approach that doesn't involve them. We want that to be a a flow that's based on their, their genuine consent. And so there's no need to lock that down in a trade agreement. Okay, so just to wrap up our discussion today, can I ask both of you, so the UK government has made very, very clear, it's repeated this till it's blue in the face, that the NHS will be staying off the table in a UK-US free trade agreements. How confident are you that this carve-out, this super carve-out that seems to be promised will prevail? Or do you think that US corporate interests might get a toehold? How likely do you think it is? How much do you think this would be something to worry about? First of all, the least important point is the negotiating posturing that's going on at the moment. What we do observe as a fact is that whilst the US, I think, is clearly having these offensive interests in healthcare in a future UK-US deal, there are two recent interesting developments in the US where I think the US administration has been backing down somewhat on the lengths of patents and intellectual property protection in the renegotiation of the US-Mexico-Canada agreement, something that was on the table and now seems not be on the table. And the other example was that I think President Trump recently flouted a proposal for importing drugs from Canada so as to bring drugs prices down in the US because the US is suffering as 
as the UK and as any other major OECD economy from a huge explosion in health in the you know in the in the costs of medicines. And so when it comes down to approaches to controlling these costs, trade and additional choice in these kind of medicines can be one way. And, you know, Trump, when it comes to his domestic constituency, all of a sudden there are proposals on the table that involve trade. Whilst, of course, he appears bullish at the moment towards other countries such as the UK. I don't think the UK at the moment has any incentive whatsoever to let go of the current way it procures medicines. It's a big chunk of data. I think the NHS spent on medicines only in England is about 20 billion, and that's been increasing at a double-digit rate over the past couple of years. And that is given the current medicine procurement arrangement, which I think is better in the UK than in most other countries. I don't see any incentives on any UK actor, the government nor otherwise, to put this on the table in a deal. I don't think the government is about to start putting things on the table in a deal, but I think how much they manage to take off the table in the in a deal is going to depend on how much leverage they have at the time and on how much pressure they feel under from the UK public. So it's really a huge success that the government's clearly under enough pressure from the public and from civil society that they've had to make these statements about the NHS being off the table. They're clearly feeling the heat and we really need to maintain that pressure and to make that pressure really specific and well-informed because keeping the NHS off the table is a much more detailed business than that the government likes us to think. So, you know, you have to keep the NHS out of the services chapter completely. That means not using what's called a negative list system because negative list ultimately puts everything on the table and it's only by very fiddly individual carve-outs for every single aspect of every single service that you can take something off the table. So we need to not have that approach. We need to take a positive list approach where instead you only put on the table what you want to. We also need to not have an investment chapter and not include ISDS because investment chapters automatically cover all investments and therefore including health investments. So that's a huge risk as well. We would like to carve it out of the digital chapter to make sure that NHS data is not covered by these free data flow rules that would possibly cause a huge loss of value to the NHS. We need to look at the intellectual property chapter and the market access chapter. And the US seems to want a specific section on pharmaceuticals as well. So we need to make sure that none of those are allowed to happen because they could threaten affordable medicine pricing in the UK. Inga, last word from you. We've been using that phrase the NHS is or is not on the table a couple of times now. I would just make that point that, you know, the NHS is huge but not monolithic. It basically consists of three tiers, and that is this part where services are being paid for and provided by the NHS, and this is not on the table anyway, right? There's nothing, um, neither under the GATS nor in any free trade agreement, that would prevent any state, including the UK government, to have a taxpayer-funded system, a public system that provides these healthcare services. Then there's a second layer where healthcare is being paid for, but not provided by the NHS, but by other contractors. And I think that is a one segment that is potentially now on the table and the conditions under which foreign providers could come in to the NHS here. But that's much more limited. And then the third tier is this private part, the luxury segment, if you will, that is currently existing anyway. It's relatively small, but I don't see much problem there. I think it's the conditions under which 
certain parts of the healthcare system can be contracted out but still being paid for with taxpayer money that we would want to look at. And here I think the UK would be well advised to stick to the you know, strong safeguards in terms of competition policy and the purview of the Competition and Markets Authority that we currently have to make sure that this is good value for consumers and patients. Well, there we have to wrap up our podcast today. I'd like to say a big thank you to both of my guests today, to Laura Bannister, the Senior Advisor at the Trade Justice Movement, and to Ingo Borschert. Thank you both of you for providing a robust exchange of views, but always providing more light than heat, and that's always very valuable. So thank you to both of you, and many thanks to all of you for listening. Please join us again for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.